A socially responsible ice cream maker and a nuclear physicist turned Buddhist monk walked into a meeting. The ice cream maker was looking for a new supplier of baked brownies. The monk ran a bakery, a bakery whose mission was to employ the homeless and economically downtrodden. They hit it off. We had a need for a bakery to bake a particular type of very thin, fudgy brownie for our brownie ice cream sandwiches. That means more jobs for the chronically unemployed. The first order was for a few tons of brownies. Not a lot for the ice cream maker, but enormous for this small bakery. And it was a disaster. The bakery churned out brownies so quickly that they ended up packing them hot. So they stuck together. Then the brownies needed to be frozen. But with a freezer full of hot brownie pallets, it took days for the brownies to get cold enough to ship. When the ice cream maker's order arrived, he got a few tons of brownies, but instead of thin sheets, the brownies were in these massive blocks. This was not the order the two had agreed upon. You know, with a normal supplier, we would just ship it back and say, you know, this, this didn't hit our spec. But with this supplier, if we did that, they'd, they'd go under, they'd go under, they'd go out of business. But in this story, the ice cream company was Ben and Jerry's. The monk named Bernie Glassman begged Ben and Jerry's to accept the shipment because he needed to make payroll the next day. Which Ben Cohen, the Ben in Ben and Jerry's, did, much to the annoyance of his factory workers who needed to deal with all these brownie blocks. Ben stood by the monk and his bakery. And let me tell you, I caught a lot of shit for this. So Ben sent a team to shore up the bakery's supply. Grayston Bakery needed quality people, production people, finance people, and Ben and Jerry helped them iron it all out with their management. Instead of making Grayston conform to their specifications for brownies, Ben met Grayston at their brownie block. And Ben and Jerry's used pieces of brownie chipped off those huge accidents to create a new flavor. We came up with this flavor, chocolate fudge brownie. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer about the hidden gems, the hotspots, and dark alleys in the world of communication. Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield founded Ben and Jerry's in 1978 out of a converted gas station. Today, the brand sells about a billion dollars worth of ice cream each year. What sets their ice cream apart? It's the chunks. Big hunks of chocolate, cherries and gobs of cookie dough mixed into their flavors. What sets their company apart is the founders bake social causes into their vision of success. And I want to be clear here, today, loads of companies donate money and release regular corporate statements about equality. That is not the Ben & Jerry's model. This team blazed the trail for responsible business, inside the ice cream and out, from fair trade ingredients to working with the chronically underemployed, to getting free breakfast to school children, to going after the chemical giant Monsanto. Ben & Jerry built the company as a vehicle for positive social change. And they have been a huge inspiration to me personally. Ben? Friendliness is engaged. I have engaged the friendly port. And Jerry? Yeah, yeah, made it. It is an honor. Take it away, Damien. <laughs> um, 
someone in your team decided that at one point they would advertise on WeTransfer. And in the early days when we had no money, um, we were unbelievably grateful that a brand like you guys suddenly appeared out of the woodwork and was prepared to spend money on something that was completely speculative because you know you had no idea whether it was going to work or who our audience was. Do you have a philosophy that drives this openness to experimentation? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you take risks that you feel have a decent chance of success. I'm interested in innovating. By definition, if you're going to be doing innovation, there's a higher chance of failure. There is this Indian proverb that to stumble is not to fall down, but to move forward more quickly. These stumbles that you were making, were they mainly your idea or were they yours, Jerry? Ben is definitely the risk taker between the two of us. <laughs> you, you would be really, really hard pressed to put me in the category of risk taker. <laughs> I, I think of myself as a really good friend of Ben's willing to go along, uh, not just on business uh, adventures, but all sorts of other adventures. Ben and I had been friends since we were 13. And, you know, he was a guy who was fun to do fun stuff with. And when we started Ben and Jerry's, that didn't seem like that much of a risk. And, you know, just kind of along the way, it started to become apparent that Ben is really a risk taker. <laughs> and, you know, had I known in the beginning, uh, I might not have signed up. But, you know, there reaches a point where you're just in too deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, well and, and the, the success of the partnership is due to uh, the different perspectives that we bring to it. And Jerry definitely keeps me from taking risks that are perhaps ill thought out. The other thing about Ben, beyond being a risk taker, is when Ben decides to do something, he is all in. And so it's not as things are going along and you run into some problems, you say, well, this is as far as we're going to get. I, I don't know that I can recall a time doing something with Ben where he said, this is as far as we're going to get. He just keeps plowing through. And certainly at Ben and Jerry's, it's been an amazing journey. But I remember a time, you know, sort of along the way when Ben and Jerry's was developing its social mission uh, and really being different. And the people who were in charge of managing things at Ben and Jerry's, they would say, Ben, uh, you know, the, the social mission, what you want to do, it keeps changing. It keeps getting further. It's a, it's a moving target as if that was a bad thing. Right. <laughs> and, you know, for Ben, that was a good thing. There was a particular off-site meeting that we had with uh, our managers where I was trying to psych them up and motivate them. And I made some statement like, I would much rather fail doing something new than succeed <laughs> at doing something old. And that really freaked them out. And how would you have been psyching them up? I, I thought they would really like to, uh, you know, go into new uncharted territories that they would like to, uh, you know, be on the cutting, a.k.a. bleeding edge with me, that uh, that, that would be exciting. But there must have been some people that loved it because otherwise it wouldn't be where it is. 
Or was it just you? <laughs> I mean, the ice cream itself was innovative and the consumers loved it. The social mission was innovative and the consumers loved that too. I've seen a lot of your talks. I've seen a lot of interviews with you guys. And the story always starts in 1978 when you were starting Ben and Jerry's in the petrol station. But if you've known each other since you were 13, I would love to know what, what you were doing between 13 and 27. Well, the story really starts probably uh, 1963, I'm guessing, which was when Jerry and I met in seventh grade gym class. It was the whole class running around the track and half a lap behind was Jerry and me. And, you know, you get to make friends with whoever's back there. <laughs> you know, then we went through junior high and high school and Jerry was an incredible scholar and uh, academic performer in high school. I was laggardly. I didn't really want to go to college, but I, I ended up going to a school in upstate New York and dropped out after a year and a half and then went to another school, dropped out, went to another school, dropped out. I had jobs as uh, a night mopper, a Pinkerton guard. Uh, what people should know about Ben's checkered college experiences was he dropped out of all these schools and then he finally signed up with a program called University Without Walls, which is one of these really progressive college programs where you don't have to go to class because the world was your campus and you didn't have to take tests. You just got credit for learning things and then dropped out of there too. It was still too much structure for Ben. It was so the that, hardest that school you... to drop out of because <laughs> they kept on saying, you're, you know, you're still in school. You know, the whole but world you is your it. classroom. Uh, I, I went to college, did four years straight. I was pre-med. I applied to medical schools, got rejected. I got a job as a lab technician. I reapplied to medical schools, was rejected again. And then I got another job as a lab technician because it was really all what I knew how to do. And we were both failing at what we were trying to do. And the idea of opening this ice cream shop was... We were going to try to work together and do something fun, learn how to make ice cream from a correspondence course, had a very low investment and, you know, essentially didn't know what we were doing, but were willing to jump in with both feet. But the thing that you did know is that what you should include in your ingredients were chunks. Ben knew it from experience. I mean, uh, he, he had grown up putting in big chunks into his bowl of ice cream. I have a really bad sense of smell that affects your sense of taste. You know, when you have one of those sensory deficits, you make up for it with another sense. And for me, it's my sense of mouth feel. So texture is, is very important to me. And, you know, the contrast between smooth, creamy ice cream and big, crunchy chunks is critical to my ice cream enjoyment. And it turns out to a lot of other people as well. The heritage of the ice cream is homemade ice cream, making ice cream in, a, in an oversized homemade ice cream maker, batch by batch. When you're making ice cream like that, you can put in a lot of big chunks. If you're starting off making ice cream with standard ice cream making equipment, it's not really designed to get big chunks into the ice cream. We did a bunch of different workarounds in order to get the equipment 
to make the ice cream that we wanted to make as opposed to make the ice cream that the equipment was designed to make. In the interviews, again, I've seen you talk about not necessarily being hippies, although you, you are referred to as hippies quite a lot. Were your family, either of you, were your family particularly activists? I'm trying to get to understand where your drive for activism comes from. For me, uh, you know, my parents were caring people. They were not activists. I, I was exposed to activism when I was in college. That was during the time there were a lot of protests against the Vietnam War and there was the civil rights movement. But honestly, Ben and another guy at Ben and Jerry's, Jeff Furman, were the people who were responsible for the activism of the company. It, it did not come from me at all. I think it came from a passion for justice. I went to a secular Jewish school, you know, that I attended one or two days a week. They educated us about how the Jews were oppressed throughout history. They were discriminated against. They were scapegoated. And I wanted to fight that oppression like Judah Maccabee. You know, as I got older, my parents would drive the family into, into New York City. We lived on Long Island, about 40 minutes outside of New York City. You come over this bridge, and on one side was, at the time, poverty-stricken Harlem. And on the other side was Central Park and these beautiful, expensive neighborhoods. You know, you just see the contrast so starkly. It didn't seem right that someone, just because they happened to get born on one particular side of a line, got screwed, and people on the other side got, you know, this incredibly beautiful life that was formative for me. And so, I mean, just trying to understand a bit of the background as to where, you th where we think the activism element really came from, because you didn't have to do it, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you were just, you were just selling ice cream, um, and you used uh, ice cream as a vehicle. And I have to say, it's one of the most genius vehicles on earth, because it's nearly impossible to dislike. We had conversations about this in the early days of uh, socially responsible business at the Social Ventures Network. And there was a question, can any business be socially responsible or socially beneficial? And I said that, yes, I do think any business can do it regardless of what they sell. It certainly helps that we're able to kind of sell the, the social activism with a literal spoonful of sugar. But there's no doubt in my mind that any company can do it. I'm not that comfortable with the term activist. I'd like to replace it with responsible citizen. I don't believe that not accepting injustice should be the province of activists. If you are aware of, if you witness injustice, if we are, I don't know, caring, caring people, you got to do something about it. No, it's true. You raise a very good point. In the real world, you know, if somebody was in need and you spend a lot of time to help somebody who is perhaps suffering from cancer, you wouldn't call them an activist um, because you were fighting for their cause or trying to raise money to help them to get, to get better. But in the corporate world, which is, I guess, those focused on shareholder value, um, refer to it as activism because it isn't business as usual. Where do you start and where do you stop? The easy answer is to say, 
well, you never stop because you've got to continue. But what I mean by starting and stopping is where do you focus? It is a bit of a target-rich environment, isn't it? (laughs) What we were saying at Ben & Jerry's was let's try to infuse our social benefit into our day-to-day decision-making, into our day-to-day activity. And if we have a wide range, a wide menu of different social benefits, then it's more likely that we could find one that would be impacted by any particular decision or action. So if you say that up front at the top of the of the planning and mission and and goal process of a business that our purpose is to integrate the benefit of the community into a, as many of our day-to-day decisions and actions as possible then that's all you have to do <laughs> so uh you don't have to do everything you just have to do what what you're able to find that integrates into your day-to-day business activities. You must have a lot of people reaching out to you guys, asking for you to support their causes or asking for you know, your help. How do you select where you give it and where you don't? Have you developed a sort of criteria over time as to where you know, things you'll say yes to and things you say no to? Do you say yes to everything? Well, at the company, which... Ben and I are no longer involved in in management or operations. I think the company has focus areas that they feel like they want to see if they can have impact on. Uh, I mean, over the years, the company has been involved in marriage equality and LGBTQ issues. It's been involved in racial justice issues. It's been involved in climate justice so they, they tend to be areas uh, around justice. It's, you know, it's not a very precise answer. It's not a very precise business, right? No, it's not. And, and you know, I think a, another thing that's, that's great about how Ben & Jerry's operates is that uh, it works with NGO partners who are doing on-the-ground work and are really the experts in the issues. So the company itself doesn't have to figure everything out. If, if, for example, in the U.S. it wants to work on racial justice issues, it will partner with organizations like Color for Change or uh, the Advancement Project National Office. And it, it does the same thing in Europe as well when it, when it works on uh, refugee rights or asylum rights or immigration issues. It connects with local groups that are really plugged into the issues. I think, again, when you talk about risk-taking, you know, in the business world, so many people would think about you know, potentially buying you know, more ingredients than you could sell up front or renting a space that was bigger than you could possibly you know, initially need. But I think one of the biggest risks, to, in my opinion, and you probably tell me this wasn't a risk, and I love that about you, but the Greyston Bakery um, sort of partnership that you started Grayston Bakery, as far as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, was founded to employ people that were considered pretty much unemployable. So ex-homeless people, people that were suffering from addiction. Um, and you you guys didn't just give them your business, but you helped, basically, you helped them shore up the company and 
and make sure the the partnership worked? Well, Grayston was formed by a Buddhist community outside of New York City that was run by a Jewish Buddhist former nuclear physicist monk. He, Bernie Glassman, had formed this community living in this very low-income area just outside New York City. And he led this group of Buddhists to be very involved in their local community, to be helping this very poor population overcome their poverty. And so we met at this, one of these early meetings of what became the the first socially responsible business organization. And at the time, we had a need for a bakery to bake a particular type of very thin fudgy brownie for our brownie ice cream sandwiches. And, you know, I'm walking around this lake with this Jewish Buddhist former monk in his robe. And, you know, he's saying that, you know, he's working with this community and trying to provide jobs for formerly unemployable people. And, uh, and he's got a bakery and thinking, wow, can you make our brownies? And he said yes, and that was kind of it. But just you had no idea if he could actually make good brownies at all. No, I had no idea. I just he said he could, and I believed him. I mean, he was uh, there's zero risk. You're right. How could he possibly lie? No, I didn't see any risk. (laughs) No, I love that. I think it's I think it's a beautiful story. And of course, as you would say, there is no risk. And Grayston has this amazing hiring philosophy, they have what they call open hiring. So people who want jobs put their name on a list. And when Grayston is hiring people, they just go down the list and they hire who's ever at the top of the list. And then they, that's the way they hire people. They don't really look for a resume or look for what their past is like. And everybody gets a fresh start in life. Oh, lovely. Ben and Jerry's continues to work with them. They make great brownies. Uh, chocolate fudge brownie is a flavor Ben and Jerry's makes, which is in the top five. So I think it's in the top three sellers of all the flavors. The company now uses brownies in chocolate fudge brownie and half baked in this country. Uh, chocolate fudge brownie frozen yogurt. It's created all these incredibly profitable flavors for Ben and Jerry's, and at the same time, provides support for what Grayston does. And the only reason we're making all those flavors is because when we ordered our first batch of 10,000 pounds of brownies from Grayston, uh you know, it took them a while to produce that quantity and they put it in, they put them in boxes and they stored it in their freezer and it came up on a truck. And, you know, then our people opened up the boxes and they were starting to make these brownie ice cream sandwiches, except they noticed that, you know, they were in 50 pound boxes and each box, instead of being filled with these individual brownies, 
they had all stuck together and it was one <laughs> 50 pound block of brownie. And let me tell you, I caught a lot of shit for this. And, uh, you know, and they're trying to break them apart. And, you know, sometimes they could break them apart a little, but usually they just came apart in pieces. And, and the problem was, you know, with a normal supplier, we would just ship it back and say, you know, this this didn't hit our spec. But with this supplier, if we did that, they'd, they'd go under. They'd go under. They'd go out of business. And so right. in order to use up the little pieces of brownies, we came up with this flavor, chocolate fudge brownie, which Genius. has since, you know, created untold millions of dollars for Ben and Jerry's over the years. I mean, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars, I'm sure. I mean, I think that's one of the most beautiful stories ever, because as you said yourself, had it been a corporate, you would have returned it. And then they were the, the fate. You know, there would never have, would have been a chocolate fudge brownie. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> I, I saw, I saw, um, I, so I've never been to visit Ben and Jerry's and uh, I have a wife who's absolutely obsessed with the sound of music. So we always said to your, our friend, Justin, that when we come, we would come and stay at the Von Trapp family house and, um, and come and visit you guys. And I was always surprised there wasn't, that, uh, there hasn't been a sound of music at Ben and Jerry's. Has you there? mean... Have the Von Trapps come over to the plant and started singing? <laughs> well, that, have they? <laughs> <laughs> Not that I've noticed. I want to break in here with a little explanation. Jostein Solheim was the CEO of Ben & Jerry's and a friend. And the real Von Trapps emigrated to the United States in 1939 and ended up settling in Stowe, Vermont, which is just a 45-minute drive from Burlington, Vermont, where Ben & Jerry's got their start. Okay, that's it. Back to the interview. No, I just thought there would have been a branded Sound of Music flavor. Um, uh, oh, a Sound of Music flavor. <laughs> I don't know. Well, the taste of music. The taste the of music. The Sound of Music, you know, I don't, I don't think that many people of this generation are that hip to the Sound of Music. Oh, man. They, they fill out audiences, uh, uh, stadiums in L.A. To, to go and sing along to Sound of Music. It's, it's monstrous. Anyway, I mean, the I'll, 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 are alive with the sound of music. Ben, I'm recording this. This will be the commercial for the taste of music. The taste of music when it comes out. <laughs> so we're nearing the end of end of the conversation, and I wanted to just touch on what you guys are doing now. Well, so Ben and I are both working on a, ca- a campaign here in the U.S. to end qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is a judicial doctrine in this country that is essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card for bad cops. And so we're working to try to get some accountability for police. You know, I'm sure people understand that there are untold numbers of unarmed black and brown people who are shot every year by the police in this country and they essentially get off for it and uh, we're working on a campaign to overcome that that's something ben and i are doing together and what does that mean working on a campaign so that there there are two ways to overcome this doctrine one is through legislation and one would be through action by the supreme court so we're okay uh, involved in trying to get legislation passed both at the federal level here in the U.S. and also within several different states which are considering it. So we have uh, an organization that is teaming up with about 
16 nonprofit advocacy groups around the country. And then we're also teaming up with athletes, business people, lawyers, uh, musicians to try to bring uh, a public relations campaign to make it a, a public engagement issue. As an aside, we give away 30% of all of our advertising on we transfer to support causes. We, When we lived in Los Angeles, we did a huge, uh, gave a huge amount of the advertising, actually all of it for a period to support gun reform, homeless in LA. We paid off LA's medical debt once. Um, so with these sort of things, if there's a way that we can help through the media that we have and we reach 70 million people every month, then um, please connect Wow. Yeah, connect me with your people or whatever else. We're we're basically here to spread that sort of word. So let let us know what we could do. It's exactly what we could what would really help. Okay, count us in. Easy. Um so Ben, what are you what are you up to? I heard a rumor that you were starting a marijuana business. I wonder wondered why you never went through and created some sort of marijuana flavored ice cream. Yeah. Uh I was on a camping trip with a friend and we were uh smoking some pot and we were saying how the pot is just too damn strong these days and wouldn't it be great to have pot that was you know about like it was when we were in college uh which is i don't know how many times less strong but you know you could enjoy the act of leisurely smoking a j and now if you try to do that, you'd be stoned on your ass. Uh, I mean, after two tokes, I mean, that's it. So we joked about, you know, coming up with a brand called Mediocre Marijuana. And I just thought it was such a good name that I just had to do it. And so I started actually working on this company. And, you know, we, we teamed up with someone who, you know, knew something about the pot business. And, you know, he was saying that you can't really have a pot business that's just all about uh, low THC stuff. And then we decided that we would give away all the money, the profits. And we decided that the purpose of the business, the, the you know, the social mission of the business would be to to right the wrongs of the war on drugs. Because, you know, in the U.S., uh, the war on drugs ended up targeting black people mostly and uh, filled the jails up with black people. White people were not targeted when white people did get caught. Somehow or other, they managed to stay out of jail. So that became the purpose of the business. And they really felt like if that's the purpose of the business, you really can't call it something like mediocre marijuana and yeah, so we're in the process of starting that business. It's going to start in Colorado. We're going to have three different product lines. One is going to be these kind of high terpene, low THC pre-rolls. And then there's going to be uh, high THC buds and uh, full-spectrum vapes, all organically grown. And what's the new name then? It's not mediocre. I'm not sure it's... if I should reveal that at this time. <laughs> oh, it's secret still. Okay, exciting. <laughs> but all the profits will go to, all the proceeds will go towards... Um... Most of that is going to go to a grant program to black cannabis entrepreneurs to help them buy equipment and grow their businesses. Some of it will go to the last prisoner project 
which is a national organization focused on, you know, decarcerating people that are in jail for nonviolent cannabis convictions and, and also expunging the records of people who had been convicted. And what's the launch date then of this secret project? Uh, it's fluid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have to wait for the next camping trip. <laughs> Soon. <laughs> okay, okay, watch this space. Um, it's been a pleasure. Honestly, I've really enjoyed it. I, uh, I could uh, keep going on forever. But um, I'm sure you, you guys have stuff to do. Um, are you both actually in Vermont right now? We are. Yeah, let us know when you're coming to visit. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if the Von Trapp family home is open yet, but um, when it opens, we'll come. All right. Come on by. And that concludes our chunky episode today. Thank you to Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield for their delicious interview. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is the amazing Rachel Swaby with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No, with sound engineering by the lovely Mark Bush. Our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Mertens. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We've got a very good lineup this season. Subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode. If you're enjoying the show, let us know with a rating or a review. And you can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. If there's anyone you think we should interview, I would love to hear from you. What is this, a podcast? Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next week. Reasonable Volume.